today's scripture comes from Amos, chapter 7, 1 through 9, chapter 8, 1 through 3, chapter 9, 1, and also verses 11 through 15 from the New Living Translation. The sovereign Lord showed me a vision. I saw him preparing to send a vast swarm of locusts over the land. This was after the king's share had been harvested from the fields and the main crop was coming up. In my vision, the locusts ate every green plant in sight. Then I said, O sovereign Lord, please forgive us or we will not survive, for Israel is so small. So the Lord relented from this plan. I will not do it, he said. Then the sovereign Lord showed me another vision. I saw him preparing to punish his people with a great fire. The fire had burned up the depths of the sea and was devouring the entire land. Then I said, O oh, sovereign Lord, please stop or we will not survive, for Israel is so small. Then the Lord relented from this plan too. I will not do that either, said the sovereign Lord. Then he showed me another vision. I saw the Lord standing beside a wall that had been built using a plumb line. He was using a plumb line to see if it was still straight. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? I answered, a plumb line. And the Lord replied, I will test my people with this plumb line. I will no longer ignore all their sins. The pagan shrines of your ancestors will be ruined, and the temples of Israel will be destroyed. I will bring the dynasty of King Jeroboam to a sudden end. Then the sovereign Lord showed me another vision. In it, I saw a basket filled with ripe fruit. What do you see, Amos? He asked. I replied, a basket full of ripe fruit. Then the Lord said, like this fruit, Israel is ripe for punishment. I will do not lay their punishment again. In that day, the singing in the temple will turn to wailing. Dead bodies will be scattered everywhere. They will be carried out of the city in silence. I, the sovereign Lord, have spoken. Then I saw a vision of the Lord standing beside the altar. He said, strike the tops of the temple columns so that the foundation will shake. Bring down the roof on the heads of the people below. I will kill with the sword those who survive. No one will escape. And that day, I will restore the fallen house of David. I will repair its damaged walls. From the ruins, I will rebuild it and restore its former glory. And Israel will possess what is left of Edom and all the nations I have called to be mine. The Lord has spoken, and he will do these things. The time will come, says the Lord, when the grain and grapes will grow faster than they can be harvested. Then the terraced vineyards on the hills of Israel will drip with sweet wine. I will bring my exiled people of Israel back from distant lands, and they will rebuild their ruined cities and live in them again. They will plant vineyards and gardens. They will eat their crops and drink their wine. I will firmly plant them there in their own land. They will never again be uprooted from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Christ Central Church. 
Let's do it one more time. I know the seasons have changed a little chilly. Um, good morning, Christ Central Church. My name is Josh Kim. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Central Church. We're glad you are joining here with us. And perhaps you thought finally there's some hope in this uh, text that we read this morning. And we're wrapping up Amos, the part three of that, as we continue our sermon series in the 12 minor, often forgotten prophets. And we have seen it time and time again. Amos is a prophet who speaks to ancient Israel, uh, but it can readily relate to our present situation today. And as we cover chapters 7 through 9 today, Amos is given this series of special visions from the Lord. And for a prophet, once again, a spokesman of God, often who embodies the message itself, the vision is a great revelation pointing to what is to come for the nation of Israel. The Y-bug has infected the Kim household. And if you don't know what Y-bug is, just be around or volunteer at children's ministry and you'll soon find out the Y-bug is a real thing. And oftentimes, the symptoms of Y-bug does not happen during the school days. It happens right before you go to sleep. As you're about to say, good night, my son, he would say, why does pizza taste good? I'm like, All right, let me answer that question for you. Pizza tastes good because you like it. Why do I like it? Well, you like it because you like it. Why did God create pizza? I'm like, okay. And then it goes on and on to a point where, did God create me? And I was like, oh, this is great. And ultimately it goes to, did God create himself? And now you get into deep theological questions, right, that you're not ready to answer right before you go to sleep. And oftentimes when I don't know the answer, we go often turn to Google. Hey, Google, tell me why things happen. Anyhow, we understand the why of growing up is part of what it means to grow. You ask questions of why as you grow, and it's part of what it means to explore things that we don't know and also understand how things work around us. So I do think it's important for us to ask why when we read prophets too. And I don't think God shies away from that as well. It's not as if God says, well, this is what I will say, accept it and leave it. God doesn't do that. Um, especially when we're faced with difficult questions such as why we suffer or why we face the consequences for our actions, especially in the case of Amos. Um, God does not shy away from that. The question such as why God so, who's so loving, as we say, allow Israel to face sin and the consequences of that? Why would these things happen? As we wrap up Amos today in Amos chapter 7 through 9, Amos ends by giving us a vivid description of what sees from the Lord. And the vision or the prophecy that Amos sees gives the ultimate picture of Israelites' unfaithfulness and how it will lead to. And emphasis, as we have seen time and time again, is upon the judgment of God. The judgment of God. God who is the ultimate judge. God who has not only the power to judge, but right to judge Israel. But we also get the question of why, if God is so loving, why would this happen to Israel? And if God is so loving, how is God going to restore and redeem Israel out of this? And Amos answered that question here as well. Because church, I don't know about you, but I'm like many of you, I'm allergic to suffering. Right? I don't want it. I also don't want you to go through it and bear it. I often find myself not wanting to be exposed to suffering, or even the consequences of my sins. But we all know that that's not healthy. To shy away, to put a bandage over suffering and 
uh, pretending like it doesn't happen doesn't really help us because we can't escape suffering or the consequences of our actions no matter how much we want to escape from it. So I believe what we need is not the absence of the feelings or being exposed to it or even wondering why this is happening, but what we need to do is to lean into our sufferings and difficulties with the hope that we find in the Scripture. And that's what Amos gives us. He exposes us to the consequences of sin for Israelites, but ultimately he turns them and points them to the hope that we can find in God and God alone. And answers to these questions of why does suffering happen and how is God able to bring about redemption out of that? In fact, what does for us is to show us a little bit more of who God is. So as Amos is prophesying about the consequences of Israel is about to face and the grace that is to come, what we learn is God's character through all of this. And ultimately, that's what the Israelites not only learn in this time, but that's the hope they hold on to as they delve into the consequences of sin they're about to face. So let's turn to Amos chapter 7, 8, and 9 to learn the king's character how God leads us into the sufferings at times and the consequences, but how also God leads us out of that with the hope that we could hold on to. The first thing we see is God's character, the king's character to punish sin. The king's character to punish sin. The desire that I had to drive fast was too overwhelming. You see, when I was in high school, my friend bought a new Ford Mustang. And he said, punch it. I'm like, how do I punch the car? He meant punch the accelerator. And it, this was even before the first Fast and Furious movie came out, right? And we're like, okay, I'm going to punch this thing. And as any teenager might do at this point, I'm going to do my best to punch this thing. So I stepped on the accelerator. And that thing flew. Unlike my small Honda Civic that went only about 70 miles per hour, this went 70, 80, 90, 100. 110, 120, 125 miles. And I saw this thing fly with me driving in it, weaving in and out of traffic, going down the highway. And I thought I was the fastest man alive driving down this highway. And of course, in the back mirror, there was the lights of red, white, and blue chasing this guy. As I was pulled over, a cop leaned in and said, Sir, do you know how fast you're going? And with trembling voice, I said, 65? <laughs> and he said, I doubt that. You know, if you hit a deer at this speed, that you would have died on the spot. I'm like, really? Really? Um, you were going 125. I clocked you at 125. Knowing that I'm going to be in the whole lot of problem, I said, can you please forgive me? He said, no. <laughs> he said, bring your parent, come to the court, Drive slow. I have to give it to you. Not only was I a danger to myself, but to the people I passed by and everybody else that was in the car at the time. The cop had to punish my behavior at the time. In the series of five visions, church, we see in Amos, we see many images that is used, but what holds these five visions together is the theme of judgment. The five visions that we just read together follow something like this. The swarms of locusts in verses 1 through 3. A fire that is to come in verses 4 through 6. 
a plumb line that is used to measure Israel in verses 7 through 9. The ripe fruit that comes in chapter 8 that's ripe for punishment and chapter 9, the God at the temple, at the altar, handing out judgment upon Israelites. What Amos does with this set of five visions is to tell Israel what is to come, and through them, the prophet makes a final appeal for Israel to repent and turn to the Lord. And along with the warning that we see God's character is on display, again, as we have seen time and time again, God must punish sin. And what is the character? His holiness and his righteousness. In fact, this is who God is. God who created and sustained Israelites is holy God, righteous God who is set apart. And we see this from the onset because even through these five visions, God is absolutely in control. Chapter 7, verse 1, it says, Sovereign Lord, show me a vision. Chapter 7, verse 4, the Sovereign Lord, show me another vision. Chapter 7, verse 7, then God, show me another vision. Chapter 8, verse 1, Sovereign Lord, show me another vision. Chapter 9, verse 1 again. I saw a vision of the Lord standing beside the altar. In each of these five visions, we see God is the lone actor. He's the main character in these verses. Amos, the prophet, partakes in these visions and shows us the superpowers of Assyria at the time. The surrounding nations, not to mention the natural phenomenon, the wild animals, even the supernatural experiences, the vision and the dreams, are all under God's mighty control and authority. And if you and I are reading the Word of God correctly, the Bible, we see that time and time again, the main character of the Bible is God and God and God alone. Secondly, what we see in God's character to punish sin is that God is the one whose standard that we must adhere to throughout. Two visions of the plumb line and the altar shows us that. First, the vision of the plumb line in chapter 7, verse 7 through 9, it says, Then he showed me another vision. I saw the Lord standing beside the wall that has been built using a plumb line. And you wonder, what is a plumb line? Where a plumb line is a line with a plumb attached to it, used for finding the depth of water or determining the vertical on an upright structure. It was used to make sure that you are building things correctly. Well, the vision shows that the wall, which represents the Israelites, has been built true to the plumb line that was there, plumb. And the plumb line, who is God, the standard, that is to say, started out correctly because God is saying that I'm the one who rescued Israelites out, out of my mighty power and brought them out of the land of Egypt. And it was me who gave them the food, the land, and also I'm the one that gave them the law of the Lord. So Israelites will grow according to my plumb, the way that I have designed them to be. And they're supposed to be a nation set apart so they'll be a witness to the watching world. The law of the Lord revealed to them the heart and the character of God. It was extension of who God was. The law of God was not merely do's and don't do's. Rather, it was the way the Israelites can live in harmony with God, the sustainer and creator of them. But Israelites have gone away, gone astray. And the vision of the altar, the temple, supports that. In chapter 9, verse 1, it says, I saw a vision of the Lord standing beside the altar or the temple. He says, strike the tops of the temple columns so that the foundation was shake. Bring down the roof on the heads of the people below. I will kill with the sword of those who survive. No one will escape. What is the fascinating about this vision is the location and what God is doing. You see, the altar, according to the Old Testament temple described in chapter 9, it was a place of a sacrifice. Worship of the animals were taking place at this place to atone 
for Israel's, Israel's sin that was to take place. It was a place of forgiveness. It was a place where somebody else, meaning the animals, were slaughtered to atone for their sins. But rather than Israelites not finding mercy at the altar, God stands and he says, I will strike and punish Israelites for their failure. It pictures a broken relationship and the consequences of the Israelites. What we see in these two visions highlight God's right to judge. In both giving of the law and the sacrificial system, we see God's right to see Israelites and their fallenness and his right to judge. That's why time and time again, God tells them, repent, return to him, seek me and live again. And the question, again, as we go through the prophets, the question that you and I had before the Lord this morning is, where are you in your place before the Lord, the maker of heavens and the earth? Not about the worldly standards or even your own standards that you place upon yourself. The question that we have to ask is, where am I according to the plumb line of the Lord? How do I stand before the law of the Lord? And how do I come before the law of the Lord, the maker, the creator, the sustainer of the heavens and the earth? Far off in church, when we talk about the judgment of God, we actually want God to change. We want him to be less holy, not to punish sin and give us a break. We want him to be less upright in his righteousness. We focus on wanting God to change so that he will give us a break. And we often have tendency to subordinate God under us rather than submit to him being creatures, rather than wanting to be creatures, we want to be the creator. And that's nothing new. That's how sin begins in Genesis, when devil tempts Adam and Eve by saying, did God really say you can be just like God? And that's how also Satan falls when he wants to be worshipped rather than worshipping God. Church, that's a grave warning, especially for the church and many who claim to follow Christ. What we fail to often realize is the depth of our sin before the Lord and not recognizing that God had every right to judge us. In fact, what we should focus on is not why isn't God changing to meet us where I am, but what must we do to change to face this righteous God who's the ultimate judge. After all, if God has to please us, fit to us, make things suitable for us, then why are you bowing down to him? If you could create God in the image that you want him to be, why are you bowing down to that? That's idolatry. You are God in that case. If you truly believe God is the God of the universe, if you truly believe that God is the one who created the heavens and the earth, if you really believe God has the power to save, then you will bow down to him. That's how it works. Because he is God and you're not. He is the creator and we are creatures. Church, oftentimes we say we believe that, but our actions, our thought do not reflect that. And that's what Amos is saying, showing this vision. Come back to him. Be true to his plumb line, not to your own standards of how you ought to live according to God's grace. But you know what's amazing about our God that you and I come to worship this morning? First amazing thing is that you and I are not struck down as you come before the holiness of God, right? 
But what because what we find is not only merely God who just not punishes sin, because you could find those type of gods all over, in all kinds of religions around the world, in religion classes. But what sets apart this one true living God of the universe is not only his character that must punish sin, but we find this God of the universe in his character to redeem, meaning to forgive and to receive his people by his act of grace. So second character we find in this text is not only his character to punish sin, but his character to redeem and restore God's people. So off to the courthouse I went with the ticket of reckless driving in my hands. I was clocked. I lived in Illinois before, but I was driving in Wisconsin. So I was clocked in Wisconsin, so I had to take a day off from school. Talk about a fun conversation you have with your parent. Uh, my dad, as a minor, had to take a day off from his work. Uh, of course, the court dates are always not in your best time. You don't work according to your schedule. You're according to the judge's schedule, right? So you go there, and I stood before the judge, and I practiced my lines. I tried to look really, really sad, right? I tried to look really, really remorseful in many ways. I stood before the judge, all trembling, and he looked at me, and he said, Sir, you have broken the record for today. I'm like, what record did I break? You could have killed someone. You went so fast. You are the top speed for today. You're lucky to be here alive. This is reckless driving at its finest. With trembling eyes, I looked at the judge and thinking, I am never going to be able to drive ever again in my lifetime. And my dad stood there with me. And my, the judge looked at my dad and said, thank you for bringing your son. Your dad is here with you. He's going to be responsible for you. Here is a fine of $500. It was a steep price. I didn't pay for it. I didn't have it. He said, my dad will pay for it. And I've looked at my dad with much more desperation at that moment in my life. There was grace for me. And as we see the grace of God, not only littered throughout the scripture, but we find it here in the Old Testament book of Amos. Chapter 7, verse 2 says, In my vision, the locusts ate every green plant inside. And this is what Amos does. Then I said, oh, oh, sovereign Lord, please forgive us, or we will not survive, for Israel is so small. So the Lord relented from this plan. I will not do it, he said. Chapter 7, verse 5, Then I said, Oh, sovereign Lord, please stop, or we will not survive, for Israel is so small. Chapter verse 6 says, The Lord relented from this plan too. I will not do that either, said that sovereign Lord. Each of the two visions, Amos the prophet pleads on behalf of Israelites, pleads for his people, and every single time, each time, do you notice that God relented? Talk about God's character of slow to anger. He relents. That of in itself is an amazing grace. God who's so wholly set apart at the pleading of this prophet, shepherd turned prophet, he relents from his anger against sin. And Amos has audacity and willingness to plead for his people. And God listens to Amos and holds up each time. But as we see the progression of the vision, progression of the human heart, and more vision is to come, after the third vision and the fourth, we see Amos the prophet actually stop pleading the Lord. We don't know why that's the case, but perhaps he has seen enough as well as a prophet who was thinking, 
I've seen this enough. Again and again and again. I see it from the Lord's perspective. I dare not even ask him to relent from his anger. And if you follow his character of holiness and righteousness, perhaps now, after the fifth vision of the Lord, what you expect is the complete devastation of the people and separation that Israel wanted from God in their sin. Now it's God's turn to say, I will not have anything to do with you. That's what we expect in a natural progression. But this is the final word that Amos gets. And Amos gives the Israelites in chapter 9, verse 11 through 15. This is what the Lord says. In that day, in that day, it's not with Israelites that completely in good with the Lord. It says, in that day, in the punishment of their sins, I will restore the fallen house of David. I will repair its damaged walls. I will rebuild it. I will restore its former glory. Verse 12, Israel will possess what is left of Edom. All the nations I have called to be mine. The Lord has spoken and he will do these things again. Verse 13, the time will come, says the Lord, when the grain and the grapes will grow faster than they can be harvested. Then the terraces vineyards on the hills of Israel will drip with sweet wine. I will bring back my exiled people of Israel back from the distant lands. They will plant vineyards and gardens. They will eat their crops and drink wines. I will. Firmly plant them there in their own land. They will never again be uprooted from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. Church, there is a redemption here. There is restoration words here. The punishment, as we see, is not the end. Yes, the punishment must come. But God promises restoration, redemption, and renewal of his people and re-entering into the covenant promise of God. And what we see is, not only his character that must stand apart against sin to punish it, but we also see his character of his love, his compassionate heart, slow to anger, abounding in love, of love and forgiveness for his people. And just as we saw God is the lone actor in handing out punishment, throughout this promise of restoration, we see it is only God who also promises that he is the main actor in restoring God's people. Chapter, uh, verse 11, it says, I will restore, I will repair, I will rebuild it. Verse 14, I will bring. Verse 15, I will firmly plant. I have given them. Verse 12, the Lord has spoken and he will do all these things. Time and time again, it is not the Israelites that's able to do things right, to get things right, get their family in order to say, God, I'm ready. I've seen it. I suffered the consequences. Now I know what to do. That's not what he says. He says, in the midst of the portals of their sin, God hands out the act of grace and says, I will restore you. I will love you. I will bring you back. Church, that is the grace of our God. That is the gospel that you and I must cling on to, not by our own might, but by the grace of our God. And that's what God promises. And in verse 12, when he says that Israel will possess what is left of Edom and the nations I have called to be mine, Edom in the Old Testament were the descendants of Esau. And if you call it Genesis, Esau is the adversary to Jacob. So Edom represented the conflict, the opposition, the separation. Now God is saying Israel will be settled and there will be no more conflict, no tear, no pain, and no separation. And not only so, in the promise of restoration, there will be security and abundance about the grains, the grapes, the wines, the drinks, all this stuff. What God promises them is security and abundance in the land once again. The scholars debate whether this is the exile Israelites, a future of our life in heaven. 
But what we see is that God promises a security and abundance, no more tears, no more abuse, no more exploitation of the others, no more empty practice of the religion, no more empty ceremonies, but security, safety, abundance of God's provision, the promise to keep them. The question now you and I must ask is how? Right? The Israelites, time and time again, after vision, after vision, after vision, they've sinned and sinned and sinned. So if you were to leave up to them after their punishment, there's no hope there. So you wonder, how is this going to be possible? And we got a glimpse of that promise, how God has sustained that in chapter 9, verse 11, when God says, in that day, I will restore the fallen house of David, the fallen booth of David in some of your translation. The restoration of Davidic kingdom is an echo and a reminder of God's promise to King David in 2 Samuel 7. We also know this reference as God's promise of the Messiah to come. So how do you and I know, how do they know, how the Israelites know to hope that God who promised this restoration will be fulfilled? And how do you and I both know that we could hold on to this promise as our own in the current life that we live in? Because God did it, right? God sends the son of David. God sends the true king. God sends Jesus, the son of God. And on Jesus, the God's righteous punishment is levied upon his shoulders. And his life and resurrection, we find our hope and forgiveness and the grace of God. We find that Jesus is a true plumb line whom God uses to measure you and I this morning. This word of God, the love of God embodied, as Apostle John tells us, became human, walked among us, and by his perfect life and death and resurrection, now he has written the love of God in the hearts of God's people, true plumb line in our hearts. So you and I are now able to follow God as you and I were created. As God calls us out of sin and darkness in our puddles of pain and suffering, God says, I will do it by sending my son to die on the cross. Jesus not is only at the altar of the judgment. He is now stricken down as John the baptizer foretold. Look at the Lamb of God who takes the sins of the world. And he took the sin upon his shoulders. He bore God's wrath upon the cross, receiving all the punishment so that those who place their faith in him, those who are called according to God's name, those names are written on the, the book of life. Now you and I can hold on to this promise that God will restore, God will redeem, and a place of God, the birth of David, the dwelling place of God is restored where Jesus tells you, I have a place ready for you. And what we read in Amos 9 is also quoted in Acts 15. In the famous Jerusalem council where the inclusion of the kingdom restored is now for the Gentiles with the redeemed Israel. So what we see is that the perfect Savior, the perfect King, has redeemed, restored, and promised to rebuild His people, you and I, for the glory of God. Church, this is God's plan of redemption, God's love that you and I read about in John chapter 3. This is God's undeniable promise he gives to prophet Amos. So church of Christ, will you place your faith in the one who stands at the door and knock, who cries out, repent and return, O my people, I will give you rest. How do we do that, church, today? We do that as we learn to grieve in this world of our sin but also learning to grieve with hope. That means we can grieve the death of the loved ones, 
the grief of death as a consequence of sin, that our physical bodies will all eventually die. But we also hope, as First Thessalonians that reminds us, we grieve, but yet with hope of the future reunion with believing in the resurrection of the time that is to come. We grieve the pain and the sufferings that come with parenting at times, wrestling with how to love and care for our children well, wrestling with children that have walked away from the faith. We grieve the effects of sin, but we also hope against hope because God's promise and that we believe in covenantal God who keeps his promise to his people. We grieve with difficulties, challenges, the pain and the loss of job, conflicts that arise, the difficulties of work, period, we also can hope and long for renewed hope in work, and that even through work itself, the good we produce, the contribution of the society, that God is redeeming the whole world to himself. The teenagers that are sitting here, we grieve with you at the challenges of the social pressure, what it means to find yourself in the world that often demands certain image to be accepted, the societal pressures, being a student, being a child, becoming an adult, choices, struggles to be seen as who you are, but we also hope with you and that God is ever so present in these places, how he, above all else, sees you and you are beautifully created in his image, just as you are. We grieve at social injustice, the injustice of the nation, unjust death, inequality, but we also long and hope for the kingdom of God that is to come. Although nations come and go, God's kingdom where he promised there's no pain, suffering, tears, cancer, abuse, injustice is coming. And that you, those who place their faith in Christ, are the kingdom's citizens. And we grieve at our own sin, our addictions and our sin that easily eat away at us. Constant struggles and hopelessness we find in that. But you and I also stand forgiven, declaring his grace is sufficient for me even in my weaknesses. So we come boldly to God's presence, singing, praying, fellowshipping, repenting, receiving grace, and longing for heaven together on this Sunday. Oh, Church of Christ, this is who you are. You get this so well, don't you, Christ Central? Because many of our stories is just that. We were once driving 125 miles into the depth of our sin, towards reckless death, of our own doing, but God's grace is sufficient. He loved us and loved us and loved us where he turned us around and we're now headed full on toward driving towards the arms of loving embrace of the grace of God. This is our story. This is a testimony of Christ Central Church, placing our hope in Christ, the son of David, son of Abraham, son of Adam, Son of God, who comes to give his life so that you and I may have, have it to the fullest. Let's pray. Let's pray, shall we, church, as we come to the Lord's Supper that demonstrates for us how you and I could confidently come before the Lord? Let's pray. Father, that's our prayer, Lord, that our hope is not merely upon our own actions, the way we could save ourselves, but our faith again and again we declare with all the saints that are gathered here and those who do not, not know yet, we long for them to know this truth, that, Lord, you alone had the hope of eternal life. Christ, let me pray. Amen.